Hi there, welcome back to Burgers, Burgers and Burgers. This is Ben Hobson and I'm here to talk to your favourite authors about their favourite books. There are also books and beers. Actually, no beers in this episode. Uh, I think Robert had a beer. I had whiskey, um, which felt appropriate to the book that uh, we decided to discuss or Robert wanted to talk about, which is The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Uh, I just finished the recording uh, having a chat with with Robert and uh, Robert Lukens, who's the guest this week, and it was an amazing chat. I'm really, really, uh, I wish we could have kept going. Um, I really love talking to him. He's a very knowledgeable man, very humble man, and um, we talked a lot about craft, but also uh, about what it's like to try to, to write in this modern world, and I, I think we touched on some stuff that hopefully all of you will find interesting and um exciting and the book that we we read is amazing too so yeah sit back uh charge your glasses get your burger ready and uh enjoy the chat this is the real stuff this is what you want to hear yeah yeah real this is it this is the podcast this is (laughs) we're living in it right now we are living out the actual real life podcast right now and it's kind of crazy that people will get this authentic experience in their ears at a different date it's kind of strange it's like we're time traveling a few weeks in advance or a year even it's strange yeah and unlike and i won't be in my pajama bottoms then it's a nice combination actually it's a combination i'm I'm not privy to enough the combination of a beer and pajama bottoms at the same time Mm. it's a really nice it's a refreshing combination it is nice isn't it it is nice to have an excuse to sit down and do that sort of thing Really, the main incentive for doing the podcast, if I'm being honest, is to just enjoy beer in pajamas. Well, it's a bit, yeah. the fact it, that it squeezed its way into the headline of the podcast is a giveaway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've just been, I've been getting up so early, man. I've been trying to do exercise in the morning at like, I've been getting up at 4.30 and it is mm. wrecking me up in the, in the afternoons into the night. Like I've. Before we hit record, so just for full transparency with podcast listeners, this is it's about quarter past eight, and I am ready to go to bed. <laughs> oh no worries. The only the only reason we're recording this late is because I insisted because I had to get my um, effervescent six year old child to sleep. <laughs> no, so sorry, I'm... it's not late. It's actually like a nice time to record. I'm just saying, I'm exhausted. Oh, for a normal human, this is completely reasonable. Yeah, if so not I'm, ideal, I'm abnormal. I'm a strange person. <laughs> But um, yeah, so yeah, we're sort of working around um, bedtime routines. Robert Lukens, what is the bedtime routine? Can you can you let us in on a brilliant man such as yourself, how you're putting your child to sleep every night? I'm very interested. Yeah, weirdly with my son, who is com- like, he's just off the scale in all, <laughs> in all regards, and I love him <laughs> for it. But if if he was an amplifier, like every knob, you know, like when your kid's been playing with your stereo system, they've turned yes. everything to full. That's yep. how he exists in life. Um, but weirdly, the going to bed is the one part of my son's life that he just nails. He doesn't sleep after that, and we have he's had chronic. Oh, now now we're getting into parenting corner, but. <laughs> That's okay. He goes to bed. He goes to bed like a champion. It's the one we all have something in life that we nail. My son <laughs> nails going to bed. I know there's lots of parents out there who would kill to have that be part of their repertoire. But um, yeah, right. We, it's the one part of our life that actually has a fixed routine. So we all have dinner at five 8, five p.m. 
Oh, that's early. That's an early dinner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything's very early. We do a 5 p.m. dinner. What do we, there's just like the cornerstones. We do dinner at 5, and at 5 o'clock, I'm in the home stretch, like mentally. Mm. I'm like bringing the plane into land then from 5 p.m. There's nothing else on my mind. Nothing else is happening besides getting this child's head to land on the pillow at 7 p.m. So he goes to bed at 7. So between 5 and 7, we're just doing a dinner. We're doing a bath. We're not doing anything. I'm not... We're not doing anything exciting, and we're just um, getting that kid off to sleep. At and- seven o'clock. So the seven o'clock though, the bedtime routine. I don't. I don't know why I'm going on about. It. I'm just curious because yeah. I think that people who this love- is our lives. It's it becomes a huge part of your life. It is, but I, I just people who love reading, and I guess even people who don't love reading as well. I'm just interested in how people actually. I don't want to use the word educate, but I guess encourage mm. a love of reading in their kids. And so one of my things has been to read to my kids every night. Uh, do yeah. you do something similar or, I mean, is that something that you're trying to encourage at this young age? It's been really interesting actually, and really a challenge and a lesson to me is because before I had my son, my son is my first and only child um, and will remain so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I just thought, oh, I'm going to have one. He's going to be like me. He's going to sit in the corner. He's going to be one of those kids that sits quietly in the corner and yeah. reads his book. Yeah. And he's like, no, five more minutes, daddy. I want to keep reading, you know, yeah. Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. There is no, there is not. And he's only, he's a bit nearly turning seven, but um, there is not an inkling of, he. he's such a resistant reader. Oh, wow. He okay. it, he, he's just a purely physical being. He um yeah, he's right. only happy in the physical realm, um, and he expresses himself purely through physicality. That's so um, cool. Like that's that's. But that's, it's so interesting. But it was a challenge to me because I just kept thinking, oh, I'm going to have this little kid with, like, horn rim glasses sitting in yep. the corner reading a yep. book, and he's not. And I've had to. He does not. He finds reading challenging, and. Yeah. Uh, so doesn't like to do it, you know, like all of us, there's something that's challenging. So he, yeah. and it's hard real... too, because then if you push it, it's going to be causing more resistance oh, and more defensiveness absolutely. and it's just going to make things worse for sure. Yeah. And I've definitely had experiences where I'm, I'm making reading. He hates it A chore. at times yeah. because I'm sitting there sort of, who wants to do that? So you sort of really walk in this line of, but it's been a real challenge for me. Like, you know, cause he's, he's like, I think I used to think that you you really form your child like 90 percent of them is is a result mm-hmm. of your wonderful parenting yeah and i've just and i don't know if maybe they're all different but i've just and it's been a real lesson for me is that they come out of the box and they are 95 <laughs> percent the way they are and you yeah. can like steer the ship a bit and you can tinker at the edges but i mean they just are who they are and i've had to really like just learn to ride the wave with that because that's um funny, man. Like, he, does, so, he does not like reading he doesn't like being read to um if it was up to him he would just he would just pl- like role play until the moment he passed out in like, bed like, like wow, that's just that's, that's what he that's what he wants to do that's yeah geez that's funny and it's i guess that's such a challenge for you because um well i know it's probably not a huge challenge because i know you're a very physical man and love to <laughs> I don't know if that's an actual joke or actually, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you no, know, yeah, I, no. well, I've I, tried I like- to not, not burden my, cause I don't really play sport. I don't watch sport. I don't, I'm not interested in any type yeah. of sporting activity. I didn't want to burden them with my own bias. And so I've enrolled them in, um, Auskick and now they play yeah. AFL. Yeah. But 
I don't know whether they love it and I think yeah. they really love playing it, but then I don't watch it and I tried to watch it, but it ended up just being me pretending to like it. So, so they might, yeah. and they just wanted to play Xbox or they wanted to, you know, watch Star Wars or something. So it is yeah. tricky. And obviously it's like, um, all this stuff's so tricky. And I, I think it's kind of, I sometimes reflect on it, even in terms of, um, like, I think you kind of get taught this idea that like you you are in this sort of educational space until you hit 18 mm. and then you just kind of like stop learning you know mm-hmm. and I was, i'm trying to reflect a lot of these things on myself and even looking at because i remember being a kid and there was one particular moment where i know my brother and sister played guitar and i got taken to guitar lessons and there was definitely a bit five six weeks in where i absolutely didn't want to do it i hated it my fingers hurt i didn't enjoy any of it and my parents it's probably the only time they ever persisted in saying, no, you actually need to keep doing mm, this. Mm. And fast forward now, like playing guitar is probably the thing I do most in my life. Like yeah, playing right. guitar is just integrated into my life. I, when, when I write, so probably 80, you know, if I'm ever at home, if I'm writing, I'm always writing over the top of a guitar. I just have a guitar in my lap. As lap. Like a, wow. So it's like safe, a comfort as, thing. As a safety blanket. Yeah. And when I think I don't sort of strut around the room, I just kind of like, play guitar so it's it's funny because this thing that is just so integral to my life and i'm not an amazing guitarist by any stretch but it's just it, it's my real comfort place and i love doing mm. it and i absolutely wouldn't have done it unless my parents forced me <laughs> to keep put to push through that sort of pain barrier of lessons so i, I think of that stuff with my kid and it's so hard to know where to place oh, this man. stuff and we're all obsessed with being our kids friends you know, in a way that my father wasn't obsessed with being my friend. <laughs> so it's so hard to know where to where to place all this stuff. But I think about that with myself. It's like, you know, what do you do when something's hard? Like, yep. do you persevere do or you, do you let it go? Is life about just like whipping yourself on the back and saying, oh, if it's hard, it means it's good for you. And or do you just go, oh, no, it's life. You should just do what you want. So it's hard, you know, all these things are. Yeah. Always going through the mind and where to push and where to pull back. Yeah. It's a yeah. constant thing. Um. Can I ask where you actually fit in your writing? I mean, your son, I guess, would be going to school now. You do have a day job, though, yeah, as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so I work full-time Work full time at uh, Melbourne Uni. And I've um, scarily just clocked up my long service leave, so I've been there 10, 11 years now, which uh, yep. it's a just big kind moment. of snuck up on me, which I know, like, previous generations would laugh at being a job for 10 years. We think that's such a... <laughs> I find that such a daunting prospect. We're so trapped and old now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I work full time and I've got a um, six-year-old and my six-year-old's mom and I don't live together. So we sort of co-parent him. So when I do have my son, it's like, you know, you're a kind of, you know, you're a solo parent. I don't have any family or anything. (laughs) So it's, it's, um, yeah, but it's, I definitely, it's, uh, I just do what I've always done, which is that I, I think I just developed the habit of writing, um, writing in a very short period of time in a very concentrated way. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. I mean, I actually have been struggling to find time at all at the moment. Yeah, I am. It's like half an hour bursts, but it's quick and it's spontaneous and yeah, so crammed but I think, in. So- so from my perspective, that hasn't really changed. That's how I've always done it. And I think that's a a blessing and a curse for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
like I've, I can always keep writing. I can always get words on a page because I do just have this, when I do have that 40 minute stretch that I've built into my day or something like on public transport or um, something like that, I can just kind of explode stuff onto the page and I can get words down. And I think, and I'm so grateful for that because I know a lot of writers who just would kill to have that ability to just like throw words at the page like that. Um, But it definitely means if I had a full day in front of me, if I had an eight hour day and you said you can just write all day, I couldn't do it. I'd still just, I don't have that capacity to sit there and you know, it has to be, when I write, it's pure improvisation and it's pure just jazz, you know, it's pure just like throwing things at a page. I'm not sitting there sort of in a long, long form way, sort of considering what I'm writing. So I think it's, um, that's something I'm really trying to develop. Do you ever get nervous that, because I'm sorry to interrupt, like I I write in a very similar way, but I often find myself feeling quite um, nervous that I'm not perhaps taking as great a care with yep. craft and with um because i mean you know to to pivot a little bit to the actual book we're talking about yeah um, so we're talking about secret history by donna tart but that is i think one of the things she does immaculately which is this mm. fine like n- very zoomed in careful precise sort of way of craft and yes. character and it's just so precise and I often feel because I do write quickly and because I write, um, like I feel like sometimes I'm, like you say, improvising, I'm acting yeah. the scenes yeah, out, I'm yeah, watching yeah. scenes unfold and my fingers just try to keep up. That's but exactly like- that's exactly my experience of writing too. It's, it, I feel like yeah. I always yeah. describe, I kind of nailed, I tried to work out what it was and I always, I feel like I'm the director yeah. and the characters are these actors and I'm just like, all right, let's go people, let's see Following what happens today. them with today. the camera around a little bit. Yeah, and then if it doesn't work, you just like clap and go. All right, reset the scene. Let's try this again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm the same, but do you ever feel like you're not able to be as precise, maybe, as a person like Donna Tart who writes every novel over ten whole years? Like, do you ever feel like that? Oh, apps. And I've, I've. It's been interesting actually. Just so, um, so I chose this novel for a couple of reasons, really. So I'm I'm going through a bit of a process of rereading a lot of books that I read in a really concentrated way when I was sort of a late teen, early 20s, because that was probably between the ages of 16 and 26. I read more books in that period than I've read in all the years since. Like it was just that time when my mind... Same, man. Yeah, same. And the the result of that is that a lot of these books that I kind of think, oh, yeah, I've read Moby Dick. I've read Secret History. I've read read all these books. I read them 25 years ago. You know, so um, a lot of these things are just kind of, I have a very vague sort of sense memory of them. I can sort of remember their flavor. I can remember whether I loved them and I can have books that I'll say, oh, that book, you know, was such an informative book to me and such a pivotal book. And I couldn't tell you what any of the characters' names were. I couldn't tell you anything that happened in that book. So I'm really enjoying revisiting a lot of those books as well because when and as well when i was when i was sort of 17 18 19 reading all these books devouring them i didn't really have and you know and i shouldn't have i didn't have a very like developed personal kind of point of view about any of this stuff i was i just read which are the which are meant to be the great books and i read them and just kind of went oh they're great books and you experience now so cool yeah and so the reason I chose this book for us to read um, is that, and I, I apologize for 
setting your homework. I think it's like a seven or eight hundred page book. Sorry, about, I forgot it, is, it was so long. It's by it's far long. the biggest one that anyone's chosen for me so far. So thank <laughs> so you. Sorry Robert. about that. No, no, it's okay. Um, but I like to it's think really the book, book. Is, is something of a gift, yeah, because it is such a wonderful book. It is, yeah. and and I just wanted to have that experience again. Of what was, because um, I have such a distinct memory of reading this for the first time. And I just wanted to see what was that experience of reading. Oh, can we can we stop? Because I want to I want to unpack that because that's really interesting to yeah. me. I feel like there was a question somewhere we didn't answer, but I don't mind because this is really interesting to me. So, <laughs> where were you when you first devoured this book? When you first absorbed yeah. it, you've got a distinct memory. Where yeah. were you, and what was it like, and what do you remember about that moment of first encountering the book? Yeah. So I know. So I was, I was trying to do the um. So I thought that I bought this book when it came out. And then I checked today, actually, when this book came out. And it came out three years before I read it. So I read this book in 1995. Yeah. And at the time, I thought, but also, you got to remember, this is effectively pre-internet. Mm-hmm. It's pre, you know, you just figured stuff out on your own. And so <laughs> if I... I just, when I bought this book, I think I thought it had just come out. So I remember there was a, a, so I'm from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and there was a bookshop in, I can't remember, maybe it was the big top shopping center. It was one of the shopping centers had a, yeah. had a, just a, a chain bookshop. Um, and there was one woman who worked there who, and I, she was sort of the person who knew about books and she was the person that loved books and you could talk to her about books and she loved having this um, little sunburnt kid come wandering in and wanting to find out about all these books. But the, invariably, all the books that I wanted to read, they didn't have in this shop. I don't know what, it was just like a commercial book chain store. And, you know, a, a Sunshine Coast chain bookshop in 1993 Mm. <laughs> you know, it just, you, you can kind of imagine the kind of books. That, so, so invariably the books I wanted, she had to order in for me. What were but those books like? Was, were you, were you reading like classics and things like that at that age even? Yeah, I definitely, and that's the, that's the trouble. So even before that, so um, all through my teens, I became obsessed with this idea of um, having to read the capital C classics. Like mm. I just thought, I just was, I was so, I was in such a hurry to skip so I never read teen fiction. I never read what you'd now call like YA fiction. Yeah. I went, but to my detriment, like I just, I jumped, you know, really? what does a, what does a 14 year old get out of crime and punishment? You know, they, no, I got you the did satisf- not read crime and punishment at 14, man. I oh, just read probably that last like, year. Probably like 12 or 13. And I know why I read what? it because I read, no, no, but I'm not saying this to be impressed. Anyone can no, sit no, it's there just and... crazy that, that that you at 14 were that interested in reading old Russian literature. Like I struggled to read that. Well, of course, a... and I and I, but I just like if you'd have sat me down afterwards and asked me to explain it to you, I can't imagine what kind of answer you got. But to me, it was just about I was just in such a hurry to give myself what I thought was this, I guess, kind of like a classical education. I was yeah, just. Right. I, I knew I loved books and I loved reading and I found, I think I was just very lucky. I found reading really easy. So I know when I was young, I didn't like my son fights with books. He like finds it frustrating mm. and I don't have any memory of that. I remember reading being just this joy. And I remember thinking, oh, I kind of enjoy reading and all my friends don't. That's kind of my thing. Maybe I'm the kid, maybe I'm the book kid. And so I really lent into that. So I was yeah. just like always asking for every time it was a, birthday or Christmas, I'd always just want books. And 
Um, I remember ordering books through like my school library, like getting my librarian to order books in that I wanted. And it just kind of became part of my like shtick, I suppose, because that was my, I was, a, I was a tiny little, I was always the smallest kid in my class. I was this tiny little runt. And I guess my way, it's like when you're in prison, right? You've got to find what's, how are you going to survive in prison? And my thing, I was never going to be the toughest kid or the captain of the sports team or anything. So maybe I could be like, brains maybe they could like go oh let's see what the professor thinks you know that was kind of my identity so <laughs> anyway my point so i was so i became obsessed with reading these yeah these like you know western canon like just i didn't know any anything else in the world like there was no internet there's no nothing like my parents had a few um you know crime fiction books my mother was really into um Agatha Christie, which I actually now really um, appreciate. Agatha, like Agatha Christie books are great books. But my mother read all of Patricia Cornwell, and my yeah, father right. would just read. My father would just read political biographies. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just read all these classics. But I was in just such a hurry to <clears throat> to get these in my brain, and and um, I don't know what I thought I was going to do with this, but I just <clears throat> read all these books just for the thrill of getting through them, I suppose, like to, to sit there and, and I would just pick, you know, like stupid book. Like I read, I remember reading and it's the, the absolute cliche. I remember reading war and peace simply because it's like the fattest book I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. So and the idea like, that I could conquering this mountain sort of thing. Yeah. And I could, cause I, I found reading really easily, really easy at that age. Um, See, when I was your age, man, when I was that age, I wasn't reading classics. Like I was a, I loved reading, but I was reading, Terry Pratchett and fantasy books. And I was yeah. reading, I read a bit of Tom Clancy. I read, um, Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, I can never pronounce it. Yeah. 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 I was super into him for a very long time, but oh, we, all, we all had that. We all had the two years where we're all massively into Chuck. Yeah. I've still got him on the insert book surname that none of us know here. how to pronounce. Yeah. Pa pa Chuck P. Yeah. or something very like he sort of blur. Never worked it out. Yeah. But I didn't get into, like, I didn't get into. I guess you'd say classics and and literature and you know inverted commas. Oh, but so I like I say games. I wish I had your teen years because that sounds like so much fun. Like these are the books that I've read <laughs> since. Like because it was all about it wasn't it wasn't much to do with pleasure. It was just to do with I don't know what I thought I was setting myself up for, but I thought that it, it all hinged on I don't know where <laughs> it's probably just from watching like yes minister with my mother or some, watching like reading adrian mole or like my parents are both british and my they moved to australia just before i was born so my brother and sister are british as well uh, and i think i just inherited a lot of this sort of very old-fashioned stuffy mm. ideas about what is a good education even though they weren't you know capital w well educated people but um so i thought i had to read all these yeah, um, right these things and so i read them but um, I didn't. I wish I'd have just read Terry Pratchett. I would have had such a happy teenage years. Well, nice. Instead, yeah. I'm sitting in my room, um, reading The Idiot. You oh, know, you obviously um, had some sort of subconscious inkling as to you know you'd eventually become you know a, an author. And so well, that's all I wanted to do. Like that's I've never wanted anything else. I wanted to be a writer. Again, like I said though, it just became part of my shtick. Like I was the kid. I had my brother's typewriter. I got my first computer when I was in year 12. 
Um, I was still writing up my assignments on a typewriter because it was the 1860s. No, but it felt like it. Like it's, and I remember having my typewriter, and I'd my identity was like sitting in my room and having to put like a blanket up against the wall because my parents were asleep, and I was still on my typewriter. Mm. Um, so it was just a big part of my identity, and I, I just all I ever wanted to be was a writer. It's funny going um, back to what you were saying earlier about how you know a kid will just come out of the box pre-packaged and pre-formed, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's clearly yeah. something that you've just always enjoyed. Um, I think that's interesting, like, rooting it in your identity as well, like it's just such mm. a core part of who you are. But to just go back to um, Secret History, what do you remember was, oh, like, yeah. your reaction to reading it first off? Yeah, I remember, and this was probably a bit of a, at a pivotal a pivoting kind of time in my life. I suppose it was just coming out of being a teenager where I just read literally the penguin classics if it had it was a penguin paperback classic that's what i read and this was when i first started i suppose being aware of what was being written by contemporary authors mm. um and i'm trying to work out where i heard about these authors because like i said you weren't checking it on the internet i must have been like and i was my parents would always buy the newspaper on the weekends and i think i read all like the I'd read the articles in the sort of lifestyle section of the, the newspaper. Yeah. Um, so I'd probably hear about these authors. And, and at the time, it felt like, um, you know, and we're still pretty deep in the cultural cringe in the late 90s in Australia, particularly yeah. in Queensland. Yeah. Um, so I was just interested in all these American authors. There were these young, brash American authors. And this is getting into the period of, I suppose, like very soon after this was David Foster Wallace and um, right, yeah, sure. that sort of clan of big brained men that was kind of what they were they were young big brained men that we were supposed to sort of idolize and i did at the time because i thought these people were the coolest people on the planet and donna tart kind of sits in this strange looking back on it now she kind of sits outside of all of that even though at the time she was sort of lumped in with she was these yeah. Various yeah groups of writers but um with Brett so Easton I remember ordering... and a few other people as well right who sorry with Brett Easton Alice especially she has a like a yeah well in that but again, even though she's permanently like attached like glue to Brett Easton Ellis, like she published her first book close to like 10 years after him. Like yeah. this was, yeah. she was separate to all this, even though she's always attached to this stuff. And as time's gone on, you kind of see how she, she just floats in her own orbit. She definitely um, does. Yeah. She's definitely her own sort of creature and she's less, it seems to be less about the rock and roll glamorous Well, lifestyle. she's just made a you know, made a, a huge point her entire career, really, of, like, her mystique grows with every year that she doesn't mm. give an interview, with every, like, I don't know anything about her. Like, I know about it. Like, you can see a photo every six years of when she slightly changes her hairstyle. That's about all I know about her. And I love that. Like, I always imagine she's just living in this um, southern gothic plantation house, like, drinking... Mm -hmm. I don't know what in the drink down there, like mint juleps or something. I don't know, sitting on the balcony, just like <laughs> dictating her stories to someone yeah. sitting behind her with a notepad. But anyway, Sunshine Coast, 1995, at that bookshop, and I ordered, I ordered a copy of this because I must have read something about it in the paper of what I thought was this new book that actually came out three years earlier. Um, so the edition I've got, which I've got in my hands now, is actually a, um, it's a US first edition. Wow. So, please to well, but it's just whatever the lady in the bookshop ordered for me. So, yeah, right. <laughs> it turns right. out it's this uh, quite beautiful, um, yeah, hardback edition with this. And I found out later she actually, 
So the book, I don't know, well, this won't work on radio, but it's a very strange dimensions, this book. Um, it's very narrow and very tall, um, and it's very odd to hold when you first read it. And it came with this um, clear acetate cover. Mm. And it turns out, I didn't realise this until I was reading about it not long ago, it was meant to be modelled after the kind of books she would see in antiquarian bookshops. So she would go and find these old, like, 18th century tomes and they were sort of more like this they weren't the standard sizes and they would always be wrapped in acetate to like protect them these antiquarian books so she had this book sort of made to look wow. like um which is if you read the book very fitting obviously because such a central yeah. thing this book is around but that she had the power to do that at such a like that's her debut like where did she get the flex to be able to and we'd be fine if we didn't do 25 minutes on our children's bedtime routines. I think that's, that's what's killed us. But this is like, this is the life of a, a working author. I know. And it is actually, you know what? I really love doing these because I just get to spend time with people I really like. And it's nice. Yeah, well, I haven't seen, we haven't, uh, to pull back the curtain, I haven't, we haven't been together in person in four years. Yep. Yep. Yeah more yeah yeah it's a long one i mean it's the same for most or a lot of people i guess yeah um yeah but i guess being an author is sort of like having an office job where no one else shows up at the office most days yeah yeah and it's nice it does feel a bit like having a permanent like zoom call with yourself like that's the (laughs) that's the (laughs) just talking into a void yeah (laughs) Um, I think we, what we were talking about, we were talking about just how Donna Tart sort of sits outside this, yeah, this new wave of of especially American authors who are a bit rock and yeah. roll and a bit, yeah, um, like the David Foster Wallace and the Brett Easton Ellis. I guess, she but also kind of, it's especially the and that it's an interesting group too, and it kind of spreads across a couple of generations, but it's. The, one of their calling cards too is they're kind of like hyper educated. This mm. isn't, this isn't people crawling out of the gutters to write this, you know, to write Dharma bums or something. This is like this is kind of the the birth of what we now what we saw after, which is the that kind of production line of people doing their masters in creative writing, yeah. which is completely great and fine. I'm not saying that, but it's like it's it up until then it you know there, there was this kind of rock and roll thing of that writers were kind of like a you love the idea of your favorite band, that person being like coming from a rough place. So they got things to, to sing yeah. about and they kind yeah. of fight against it. And then you get into this period of where these people are hyper educated and they're often yes. wealthy or they're often supported. And they've kind of, they've spent seven years teaching, giving advanced writing workshops at some illustrious yeah. American college. And they're often writing about the very same people right and i mean this is this is this book in a huge way as it presents academia and like the study of greek literature um in this really really um attractive way Uh, that's the one thing i found over and over again and as i was reading the book was just even though these people seemed kind of awful to each other for some reason yeah i wanted to be there i wanted to be in that world and it just felt like such a these people like on the cusp of these brilliant ideas and all these, they were talking about these deep things. And I guess there's this longing in, in me and I, I'm hoping it's not just me, but it's like this thing that I, I would love to be able to 
read literature and then talk about it. I don't know what it is. I yeah, mean, but that, that's exactly what it is because this book is a fantasy. Mm. This book is a, it's Donata writing, living, living and writing out her her own fantasies of what of what this life she lived wanted to be. It's it's the life where it's so attractive. Yeah, and like yeah. on literally and metaphorically, like there are these beautiful people in this story sitting at this kind of uh in this very exclusive small close-knit group that was selected to to take part in this um ancient greek study class where essentially they all sit around the fire discussing what the purpose of a a well-lived life is and they and this is what we it's what on you know it's it's in a very attractive proposition it's just your whole head and life and and exactly everyone speaks in aphorisms and everyone says exactly the right thing and everyone says something that's brilliant things brilliant yeah. and sexy and and thought through and and it's i think a lot of it like this this book written by someone else could just be unbearable you know like this yeah when you describe that to someone who hasn't read this book they go that sounds awful pretentious man, <laughs> but doesn't it? i think it just honestly the secret ingredient in this is just donna tart herself and i don't know if you've seen many interviews with her or heard her speak this is how she is just she has such a large and warm and beautiful and brilliant mm-hmm. and incisive personality this is just her she does but can i add to that i think she's also quite she seems very like, incredibly brilliant, but at the same time, quite humble about it. She doesn't seem like yeah. she's condescending or... No, not at all. And I yeah. think, and she's kind of like, she presents herself in this book. And I think if you sort of look into where this came from, she's the, she's the quintessential observer. So mm. she, <laughs> this is her, she, even within this story, like she is one step back looking at these people. So she's looking at these people who in lots of ways are unbearable, like they're yeah, overeducated, they incredibly wealthy, incredibly beautiful, all this, yeah. they have everything at their fingertips. And that's something very unattractive because she's one step back and observing this. You feel like she's standing with you describing these, these people to you. Never, I guess that's the power of her narrator too, place. right? Like Richard, yeah. it's Richard, right? Richard, because it's not, his yeah. name's not mentioned that often. Um, no. And but I as, think that's quite telling. But yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, yeah. And then how he functions <laughs> as this person who is an outsider, who has yeah. sort of come from, um, I guess you could yeah, even much, call it poverty just about, right? Like yeah, much humbler. From, yeah. But because of that and that entryway, like you say, yeah. we get to observe these creatures and yeah. we get to see this attractive kind of quality to them that's completely unachievable or unattainable for yeah. almost every human being on the planet but at the same time it makes us feel like we're not being condescended to because we're not looking at things from their perspective maybe yeah absolutely and that's the thing like with she's like you i think you were just totally spot on before you describe this book as being like very precise and mm. very like the craft is impeccable in this book but it's it's so warm yes. she just has this i don't know if it's something to do it's obviously just through um and we'll get this later I want to talk about how long it took her to write this book and her sort of dedication to the craft of this because there's this kind of um this illusion of easiness to her writing it does feel like you're mm-hmm. sitting down with the most charming and eloquent storyteller of all time just yeah. telling you this as if it just happened yeah and she spent I think eight to ten years writing she this said book. ten years in the interview I heard her speak on she yeah. said each novel takes her ten years yeah and that's so it's an illusion <laughs> and she is, she's 
she's from the South of America and she's, she, and I don't know if you've seen interviews with her, but she is just, she is that classic kind of Southern storyteller. She yeah. kind of, something about her voice, it's as if she like kicks back in the chair a little, like she is permanently holding a, a drink with the ice cubes tinkling while she's telling you the story with this incredible Southern brand. But I think that's, that's selling her very short to think that it's just, because this is a book that she spent 10 years writing and also, and it's, I think it's worth noting, um, that entire time she didn't have a job. She was completely financially supported by her boyfriend. Um, yeah, yeah, wow. So this is what happens when, and she didn't have any kids and she didn't have, she lived in a beautiful house, mm-hmm. in a beautiful Gothic house with all this like intelligent, beautiful, rich people coming in and out of the house for 10 years. She had a boyfriend who went and um, came from wealthy background, earned all this money. So she spent 10 years sitting down, smoking her long French cigarettes, drinking her port beer and, and why does and, that sound so good? It sounds amazing. Of, like of it course sounds, it does. And that's, yeah. and, but I think about it a lot because I've, um, I think I'm, I'm just a car crash segue sideways a little, um, <laughs> rereading this book has been really interesting to me because I hear about that. And as we discussed earlier, this idea, this approach that we both have just through necessity, really, that we yes. turn up to the blank page, slightly frazzled and go, oh crap, I've got 35 minutes yeah. and just blast onto the page. Um, and I just, I suppose I'm just trying to weigh up what do I do from here? Cause I've been doing that for a long time and I've like, I've only, I've only just published my second novel. Um, but I suppose I'm just trying to think like, where to from here? Do I, because yeah. I've always felt this, um, urgency to mm. finish the book. Mm. It's always an urgent prospect. It's always like, I have to finish this thing. I start it and I just, it's almost like it's precariously on the tip of my tongue and I have to get it down before it disappears. The idea of sitting down and also what a gamble to sit down. You only sit down and write a book for 10 years. If you either don't genuinely don't care at all about what happens with it. Like you're just purely trying to write the best thing. Or if you, I think like Donna Tartt, for that entire 10 years had publishers, agents and writers knocking on her door every day saying, when can we see this book? So I think she, she kept her powder dry for 10 years because she wanted, and you know, and history kind of shows that a lot of her contemporaries at the time when she was first graduating from Bennington college and Brad Easton Ellis and these other writers around that time, they all published at 18, 19, 20. Yes, they did. All their books, for for all the impact they had, have been kind of forgotten through history. Or someone Actually, like Brett Easton yeah. Ellis, like, show me the people now standing up saying Brett Easton Ellis. Like, Brett Easton Ellis is like the Ken Doan of literary fiction in the 1980s. Like, very impactful, very popular, but incredibly dated and seen as being very superficial and has aged terribly. Um yeah, I'd Whereas say American like Psycho Tart would be is, one thing, right? American Psycho would be the one thing well, that people still hold on to. But like you say, it yeah. is like you say. <laughs> but yeah, and, and maybe that's being unfair to him. But you know, he he said no. Enough. I understand. Like, he's <laughs> he's not, he's he not, deserves whatever he gets. But he's um, not as revered someone, as someone like Donatart. Donatart is still. It's like I just I find it in, just incredible. This this the the care. Yeah. And like you say, like the urgency thing, 
to me, I have the same sort of drive where you just want to get this done. You want to make it as good as possible, but you want to get yeah. it there while the idea is fresh. But to spend 10 whole years yeah. crafting one thing, I just, I find that type of dedication to it astounding and admirable. I, I think, John, I don't know if it's the same for you, but it's as well as wanting to get the work down quickly because it's kind of like just teetering on your brain you want to get down but also it is this kind of fear of i feel very lucky to have been published yes it feels yes. a bit like you've not won the lottery but like won the meat tray down at the golf club like it definitely feels like you've you've you're very lucky to be in that position and the idea of just disappearing for seven years mm-hmm. like you're a bit afraid to disappear you're a bit afraid like oh i better I've got to get this to my publisher because what if my publisher forgets me in 12 months time? You know, what if she forgets that I exist? Do you you have this slight. Do you think they were in a bit of a different space though? I mean, we're talking about something that came out in 1992 where the world was slower, right? And you weren't, you people could be more patient and wait for the next one, which would come out in 2002. And then you'd have, um, you know, Goldfinch come out 10 years later. Yeah. But she's been doing that and she, we know that now and it's more of a, an event and it's something that we look forward to. I guess she's due soon, right? For a new thing. I don't. Yeah, I guess so. It's, but well, do, you knows, think do you I think don't know where the she... culture is now? Like we're so quick to, you know, TikTok swipe up. Like, do you think that perhaps part of the, maybe if I, you know, I probably share the fear of being yeah. forgotten right yeah um do you think that's because we're just a part of the culture now and we we know just how short attention spans are like do you think do you think a person like a donatart could it come out now and in 10 years time have the same impact that she has i don't, I don't know i don't know whether yeah, it's really interesting. i don't know i think i think it's also it's very hard to judge because her first book came out and was a massive success yeah. immediately. So, and like we were saying before, it's like you were saying, how did she have the sway to, she she decided that her book would come out in a weird shape and to mimic the antiquarian books that she found while she was strolling through Soho antiquarian bookshops. So that just tells you so much about the position she was in. So I think, I don't know what the details of it, but her she got more than a million dollar advance for this book. Like she was, flying when she wow. hit the ground with this book. So this was not like a rags to riches tale. This was someone who people had been expecting her book for years. They fought over it. They gave her at least a million dollars. Like this was a book they were going to make a hit. So it's so hard. to. So she became an event author mm. from day one. Like her first book was an event. So I suppose it's an incredibly unique position to be in where she can she can afford to disappear Mm. and it's she knows it's part of her allure and i'm sure it's part of just how she wants to live in the world as well but her mystique of just dropping a book on the world every 10 years and it being a huge hit is the luxury that comes with getting a million bucks for your first book and being able to be a mystery like it's what (laughs) what a what a um what a treat to be able to be aloof like that yeah just to sit i imagine in her beautiful southern gothic castle and and it's and it's crazy to think too because she she did back it up like she backed yeah. it up she backed up the 
the million dollar advance, she backs up that kind of yeah. mystique because the writing is so good. It's so good. And I should say to like, it's one of these funny books to, even when you describe the premise of the book, and even if you describe Donna Tart to people, it's kind of off-putting. Like some of the stuff we've said here tonight, I'd kind of go, oh, this all sounds a bit, I don't know if I want to read it. It's such a warm book. It's such a beautifully generous book. Is this is very, not a book yeah. written by some brain-throbbing intellectual who's trying to demonstrate how clever they are all the time. This book is just like sitting down with the most warm-hearted, beautiful, eloquent, generous storyteller who's had two drinks, but mm -hmm. is still like one of those like, old school personalities who you'd see on talk shows in the 70s that the more they drank the better their stories got you know mm. she's like that you can she's just it's such a warm and giving and loving and it's so much fun this book's really fun it is like yeah. just every sentence is so rich and colorful but it's not it's all to an effect and it um so I should just say, if, if this whole conversation has put people off this book, <laughs> I should say, please just give it a chance. Just get it from the library. I know it's yeah. very thick, but it's so much fun. This book it was is. such a pleasure to read. It, um, is, it is. That's a great word for it. It is an absolute pleasure. And I think perhaps the way when we talk about it, like the setting, it kind of lends itself, like you, like you say, it's like it sounds like it's a thought experiment. Like people, yeah. it sounds like to elite philosophers debating things in a room about Greek literature. Like it sounds yeah. horrible, it but does. I would say, <laughs> I would say her, I would say when we're, when we're talking about her precision with her craft, I would say that the thing she, she seems to care the most about are the people in the book. And yeah. I think it feels like to me that they're, they're real people to her. And I've actually heard interviews with her where she knows exactly where these people would be now. Like she still thinks about them. Yeah. Um, so I feel like the precision is not about the intellect, like you say, or sorry, like you've said this, it's not about mm. that. The precision is about evoking the sense of character in such a careful way that you really feel that you know them really deeply. And I think yeah. that's that's the most affecting thing in this book. It's 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 you're not just quickly getting a dash of a character trait. Yeah, you get to really feel each of the characters in depth. And I like, I guess that's why maybe it's a little longer as well. And there's you know big sections yeah. of the book that take so much time, but yeah. they're so pleasurable because you're you're getting to know these this family of people. It's really yeah, it's really well done. Yeah, but she has that nice trick too where, and again, I think it's all like interwoven into the story. Like she is a student of the Greek classics and she goes on about this all the time in her stories that her pleasure reading, she just goes back to these, literally the Greek classics, not the Penguin classics, but the Greek classics. <laughs> and the thing about those stories are they're, they're archetypal stories. They're actually stories with just, they're not stories with subtlety. They're stories with mm. a very clear antagonist, a clear protagonist, a clear someone gets killed a god gets involved these things happen so she integrates this story that's so beautifully woven and like you said we understand we get close to these characters and we really feel part of their world but then the thing that makes it go to that next level is at its heart it's a very intriguing mystery story like there are these big it's a page turn as we find out on the first page that that these characters all murdered someone. That's not given. That's on the first page. Yep. Like this isn't a story where, and then always oh, talk about philosophy, and then we reflect on our lives and our missed opportunities. No, no. There's like 
there's murder and there's you know there's intrigue and there's people double crossing each other and there's FBI yeah. and there's all... yeah. so she kind of draws on these Greek tragedy stories which have just these big stonking storyline elements kind of yeah. that's all they were they weren't about nuance they were just about big things happening and a god coming down and striking lightning on your house because of the bad things you've done she well, does that but i read that she some... was doing that like she starts with the death of um bunny right at the beginning because that is similar to how greek not familiar with greek literature i've read yeah. one or two but yeah. that they the people watching these old plays or reading these they would know the outcome before they started yes. and so she yeah. did the same thing she's like nope this is the outcome that's not the story and i think she yeah. even said it it's not a who done it it's a why done it and yeah, yeah it's really well done and what a but also what a what a power move to to just go like yeah i have such faith in my writing and this 900 page book that i'll tell you on the first page what the entire story is about yeah. and i still reckon i can hold you for 900 pages but can i ask you this i was actually thinking about this imagine imagine the book without that beginning imagine yeah, it yeah. just started um uh, going to uh, sorry i forget the actually hampton i think it's called right hampton yeah which is Bennington College, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ben, yeah. yeah. So it, the very first thing is just a, a student going there and we don't know that yeah, yeah. this murder it was hanging over the top of these people. We're not analyzing their actions yeah. to see, or oh, why are they so mad at Bunny and like, how is this viral? Yeah. Do you think it would have maybe sold as well or been as effective if she hadn't have put that very clever thing at the start? Because I don't know. I was thinking about, I don't know. I think maybe people might have get... Maybe the nineties were more patient, but um <laughs> Oh look, there's no would you denying, have stepped like, through it, you know. Would you people can't just deny, put it down? Like, the power of the power of a absolutely sizzling one page prelude. What are they yeah. called in a book? The bit at the start? What's it what a prologue, prelude. Prologue, that's the one. Prologue, I don't see yeah. I'm not I'm not a student of these things, but yeah. Like <laughs> the power of a one because it keeps you going through the It really does. You just because you know this tension because it gives you this thing and there's like a page one someone's been killed on the side of a cliff they get covered in snow the snow's melted so they found the body and then it's an like oh now it's just my first day at school and you're like what Hang on. so it 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 does give you that um that that electricity in the air that covers the first 150 pages where you she keeps going some... back to it too like every like yeah. 50 pages It'll just be this little aside of like, I knew what would happen to Bunny when he said these things and just these really small little snippets like, remember, Bunny's going to die soon. And like, oh, wait, though. Yeah. she's. Well, and I think that's, and again, I'm not nearly the student of Greek tragedies that Donatart clearly is, but like you said, that is, Greek tragedies weren't about the um, twist at the end. It was like, no. it was they were essentially like morality tales. And this this novel is a morality tale in some ways, because and you kind of know from the start that these are kind of bad people who do mm. bad things and mm. and they can't sort of extricate themselves from their actions. And that like a Greek tragedy, you can't, you can't escape your actions. Like the the lightning bolt is going to come and strike your house at some point. You, you think can't really, that you part can, of it, do you think that part of it too is her, because I actually read, and I didn't realize this, that she uh, has converted a very long time ago to Catholicism. So do you feel yeah. like perhaps there's a degree of 
this idea of walking around with this type of guilt and shame and sin hanging over you and this condemnation perhaps. Because um, when she was talking about her Catholicism, she did make it very clear that, and I've got a quote from her, she said this, yeah. people, writers need to be shy from asserting those convictions directly in their work. So she, I think, took pains to remove all that type of spirituality from her from her writing. Mm. But, I mean, maybe that's a part of the, that morality in there. That, um, when did that's really interesting because Donatart's one of those people that I I I really enjoy how little I know about her. Like mm. she, it she took a while. Like existed. I had to read a fair bit, like around when um when did she become a Catholic? Later in life? I'm not sure. It this was written, I believe, must have been 2003. She contributed an essay to something called um the uh, it was a magazine or like an essay journal and it was called the novel yeah. spirituality and modern culture and um well it's just it's fascinating so she, to me as well she, yeah. so she Sorry. said this faith faith is vital in the process of making my work and in the reasons i'm driven to make it yeah would you have thought that about like i would never have clued it doesn't on the only other thing it kind of the little spidey senses that's going off is that i know so I'm a big Evelyn War guy. He's mm-hmm. my guy. Mm-hmm. My son's middle name is Evelyn. Mm-hmm. He'll he'll grow up later and he'll hate me for that. But his middle name, is Evelyn. I'm a big War guy, and I'm particularly a big Brideshead Revisited guy. Uh-huh. And I know that Donna Tart and her set at Bennington College were obsessed with the BBC television production of Brideshead Revisited, and they kind of modelled themselves on it for a time. And and oh, I know wow. she, they kind of tried to live out Brideshead Revisited. So everyone walked around with um, teddy bears and waistcoats and all the rest of it. Um, <laughs> and the only reason that springs to mind is because uh, Evelyn Waugh was a later-in-life Catholic convert. Oh. And... And I know that's a big stretch, but it just, it's because I know that she's, and when you read Secret History, there's absolutely huge whiffs, big guffs, guffs of Brideshead revisited through this, even in her description of the buildings and all this kind of stuff. You can't, you can't separate Brideshead revisited in this book. They're so integrated and even just into her style, like at the time, I think, I think mm. there's so much Brideshead to this. Um, and I know, and all through Evelyn's, um, Mr. War's books, there's <laughs> kind of this same yeah. thing. So he, he converted to Catholicism later in life. And then, um, so Brideshead, he considers a Catholic novel. And it's all just because at the very end of the novel, there's a description of a flame still burning somewhere. Like it's wow. very subtle. So yeah. he, his whole thing is that this Catholic, the flame and all this, any kind of stuff. So it's just very curious to me <laughs> about yeah. um, how this stuff all slots together. And it's kind of, I just thought of Evelyn because, and Evelyn too had this, um, like all converts, he was kind of, th- there's nothing more, f- more like ferociously parochial than a recent convert. So Evelyn Moore suddenly decided he was Catholic. So he was the most Catholic of the Catholics. Yes. yes he yes. went around, um, uh, criticizing all his friends who had been lifelong Catholics who were just kind of like bored of being Catholics. And he was, <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, knew the same real kind secrets, of thing. Yeah. yeah, and he got very frustrated at his friends, like uh, Graham Greene, who he knew, mm. who was um, Catholic. And uh, it's funny this stuff now. Like the the concerns of a of a nineteen sixties British author about the 
how how interwoven your like Catholicism into novels. It's so funny. Like, it's just such a different world <laughs> we live in now. It's sort of a world of subtleties that now has, I guess, suppose been lost. But anyway, that's fascinating to me that she's a, a Catholic convert, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't for a second say that it's connected at all to Evelyn War. But it's just funny. That's the first thing that popped no, to mind. I, I know a lot of Evelyn's friends kind of always to sneer at him and kind of to each other say, "Oh God, it's just Evelyn. He just likes the idea of being a Catholic. <laughs> he's, just, he's just bored." <laughs> He's just bored, so he's found something interesting. <laughs> but, I mean, I think going back to what she said, like where writers need to be shy from asserting their convictions directly in their work. Um, and and you made, you've made links with this to Greek literature. We've made links with this to Brideshead and, yeah. you know, a bunch of other things probably. But I guess the question is, like, do you think that she is consciously avoiding putting these things in or is she consciously adding these references or is it just that like you know let's go full circle back to early childhood robert lucans absorbed <laughs> all these different things and then yeah. this is the artist that she is because she is the sum of all these different things that subconsciously this is just her craft now but you can make these these traces back like it like I, a, I think the only just from hearing her speak and reading this book and knowing how long she took to write it, I think every word of this book is deliberate. I think every <laughs> element of this has been considered over endless stultifying conversations at her rich boyfriend's house until <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. Like there's no way like this, every bit of this has been considered. And can, um, can I go back to that though? Sorry. I wanted to ask you this earlier because we've talked a yeah. number of times. So I keep interrupting you 10 years, right? No. She took to write this. Yeah. What did you in your mind think those 10 years looked like? Because do you think she labors over like as a sentence a day or is it that, that she is, endlessly revising until it's right rewriting i feel like she's endlessly revising um and like you know the size of this book she had no problem getting words on a page um i don't think she it doesn't seem to me that she like pained and wrote two sentences a day i feel like this is someone who has reworked and this is why i think every every element of this is is deliberate is that i think this is someone who it was so important to her this all this massive book knitted together as something mm, mm. and she i think she feels this it feels like she feels this great um weight of history from all these things she's read and all the like she i feel like she and again this makes it sound like she's she's awful and the book's awful but i think she wanted this book to stand up against all the greek tragedies that she'd read and admired and she wasn't she didn't want like all her friends to dash out a piece of youthful exuberance. She didn't want to be a. She shot her shot like she, she went for it, right? She just went like, "I'm just going to be one of the greats." Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's so cool. And again, she's so cool. Like, there's no denying she's just yeah, such yeah. a cool. For and what a cool, like, what a move. While all of her friends and colleagues were off getting Rolling Stone articles written about them, having their third hit book, for her to sit at home and smoke her little French cigarettes and go. Yeah. I'll I'll just keep working on this this one book, you know, like what a move. Like it's just and it was a great gamble, but you know, she obviously she has there's such a there's a type of confidence in that, right? That I just I just really I long for the 
Well, it's confidence, <laughs> and it's also circumstances. It's amazing. Like this is if I had a boyfriend who would put me up in a in a beautiful Soho apartment for 10 years and right, I'd give that a go as well. You know, <laughs> like it's, <laughs> you know, that's a very rare and luxurious position to be in. Um, but it's such as like, it's, it's, it seems to be written. And I guess maybe this is where we come to talking about the precision and the craft, but it is such a confident book. And I, I feel yeah. like, I feel like, you know, I'll say when I write, I feel insecure about what I've done. I, I endlessly look at you. it and always think, of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I always think like, this is not good enough. This is, this is rubbish. And I revise and it's, yeah. even when it's published, you read it back. You're like, oh, was that actually good? I don't really know, but she seems to know. She just knows deep down. Like I'm confident that this is great. Yeah. Like it does seem like that. And, um, she also, I think she was, you know, I think she was publishing pieces when she was a teenager like she was she's someone who that that was her shtick when she was at school i think she was a high performing hmm. smart witty funny people kept telling her she was great she'd write little stories for the school papers and things i think she had like a piece of poetry published in a national like in some literary poetry magazine when she was a teenager or something it's all a bit missed sort of a bit clouded in the mists of time now about her history but i that's her shtick like she was the mm. she was fated for this she was destined for this and she was an incredibly smart teenager and that stuff just becomes interwoven into your personality i think so um and like i said like she was she had people beating down her door to publish yeah and that what a position that is yeah what a position but i mean like we've said it's absolutely they were right to do it they were right. <laughs> they were right to be. Yeah, yeah. But she's it. a one of a kind. Like she's she's a unique story. You know, I think this is a. I can't think of many people in, who no. occupy a similar space to her. No, I, don't I can't know. either. But also, her books are beloved. It's not just like, and again, just to draw back to some of her contemporaries, there are a lot of books that people admire or admire the people, but you know, not many people go and reread all those David Foster Wallace pieces that are so clever and wonderful but her books are beloved you know because they're read in book clubs and they're read Mm. by people who just like reading good page turners like they're they're books that people actually enjoy and that's um i don't yeah and i I must admit i've only read um i read secret history and i read the book that she put out after this called a little friend my little friend my best friend Mm. something like that um a book that i remember nothing about a book that I, I remember enjoying. I think mm. it's narrated by a young girl in the South of America. There's some kind of mystery, a murder mystery. Maybe her friends murdered. Something happens. I remember enjoying it. I couldn't tell you anything about that book. Wow. Um, but I haven't read anything. I haven't read The Goldfinch. I haven't read anything she's written since then. I've read The Goldfinch. I read that when it came out, actually. And I, um, very similar, very similar style to this book. And I would yeah. say perhaps... I would actually say very similar, same thing. Like a thing happens at the start that sets off this mystery, not a mystery, but like a, like a, a bit of a plotty page turner stuff, but then it just becomes about character stuff. It's a similar, it's yeah, it's a pretty brilliant piece. And that's, I was really excited to read this book. Um, we might finish it there, Robert, man. I, I'm just so appreciative. I actually, like, I just forgot the mic was on a little bit. Like, I've had such a good time <laughs> chatting too. with you. Thank you. 
Thank you for recommending the book. And um, just so everyone's aware too, Robert's newest book, um, Loveland is out and it's an amazing book. Um, I love all your books. I mean, it sounds weird to say it to your face. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, Robert Lukens has written two books and they're both awesome. And you need to Google his name, find his books and go buy them and read them. And um, yeah, thank you so much, man, for being a part of the podcast and for um, getting me to read this book. My pleasure. And I will speak to you soon. Thank yeah. you. Thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>